Today I'd like to welcome Dr. Fred Papali. Dr. Papali is an assistant professor in pulmonary and critical care here at Maryland. Um, to give you a little bit of background, he uh, did his medical training at McGill in Canada where uh, uh, he followed his uh, MD um, at uh, Georgetown where he did his residency, followed up with a chief residency year. He there won uh, an award for an outstanding resident physician. He's um, followed up his chief residency year at uh, Massachusetts General Hospital in the Division of Global Health and Human Rights and spent the bulk of that year um, in South Sudan working uh, with individuals um, that were clearly critically ill in, in that country and it really motivated him to continue um, on to his pulmonary and critical care fellowship here at Maryland where he was awarded the Outstanding uh, Fellow Teaching Award um, a couple years, a few years ago. Uh, Dr. Papali, he's um, presented multiple times in, in a variety of um, international venues. Um, one talk uh, most recently for the American College of Emergency Physicians was entitled Optimizing Sepsis Care in Resource-Limited Countries. Uh, he talked in Atlanta um, last year as well on telemedicine and mHealth, uh, life-saving technologies for acute care in resource-limited settings. Um, he's published uh, multiple papers on uh, medical care in uh, resource-constrained settings um, and uh, is a member of a number of organizations focusing on this very topic, um, including the, uh, being a member of the Sepsis uh, Third World Task Force for the Society of Critical, critical Care Medicine. Um, he's in the uh, Global Critical Care Committee for the American Thoracic Society and the Acute Care for Africa Research and Training uh, Working Group. So, welcome Fred, and thanks for coming. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you, Dr. McCurdy, for that, that kind introduction. Um, so thank you for, for coming here. To all of you, happy St. Patrick's Day. I hope you all had a good Irish breakfast this morning. Um, it, it's great to be back here as faculty to give the Thursday um, Fellows Lecture. Obviously, when I was a fellow here, I used to come every week. I learned a lot and I could partake in the free food. Now as faculty, hopefully I can teach you something, but I'm not allowed to eat the food anymore, so enjoy that, that bologna sandwich while, while you can. Um, so today I want to talk to you, discuss a, a topic about which I'm deeply passionate, something that I think is incredibly important. Um, and I hope by the end of this session, all of you here will uh, appreciate the importance of this topic, which is sepsis in resource-constrained settings and um, hopefully be motivated to do something about it as well. I have uh, no conflicts of interest to disclose. So first, we're going to be defining the scope of the problem. We'll discuss the challenges to effective sepsis care in resource-constrained settings. And mind you, in my practice, I deal with big kids, so we're going to be talking about adults, uh, not pediatrics. Um, we're going to talk, uh, we'll provide an overview of contemporary literature and then address future research needs. Can everyone hear me? I'm a low talker, so this mic is essential. If you can't hear me, please let me know. So this picture, this was actually taken by Dr. McCurdy in a slum uh, in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And I think it encapsulates what many of us think of um, when we think of global health. Poverty, lack of access to clean drinking water, lack of access to sanitation. Um, and these are incredibly important determinants of disease in resource-constrained settings. Right? But when I'm working in a hospital overseas, my bias as an intensivist is one where I think less about what that patient who's critically ill, who's barely clinging on to, to life, uh, ate, or whether he or she was vaccinated as a child, 
What matters the most to me is what can I do right now to save that person? What can I do right now to get him or her back to his or her family so that he or she can keep on providing? And when you look at critical illness overseas, intensive care is actually uh, pretty important. Globally, about 500,000 women die every year during childbirth. Five million people die every year due to trauma-related causes, especially road traffic accidents. And nearly 20 million people around the world die every year from severe life-threatening infections. When you think of a typical ICU patient in our setting, we think of somebody who's older, who has multiple, multiple end-stage diseases or an exacerbation of a long-term chronic disease that tends to be less amenable to cure. But um, overseas, when we uh, look at hospitalized patients, they tend to be younger, uh, tend to have one acute problem that tends to present in an advanced stage. But oftentimes, that acute problem is amenable to intervention. Also, critical illness is all around us. It's not limited by language. It's not defined by geopolitical boundaries. Every single person, you, me, those guys outside, every one of us will become critically ill at some point in our lives. Also, the core elements of critical care or intensive care are the same, irrespective of where you are in the world, right? What it really involves is recognition of a severe illness and the ability to intervene. So taking simplified, cheap, effective approaches from one region and adapting them to another in a resource-appropriate way actually might make sense. And also, when we think of intensive care, I think most of us think of bells and whistles, right? In high resources, um, high utilization costs. But again, the core elements of critical care or intensive care are actually pretty simple, right? In my opinion, critical care is less, about, is less resource intensive and more human resource intensive. It takes a well-trained person or group of people working together to recognize badness and intervene when it actually does uh, occur. So in that sense, intensive care actually can be cost effective. The World Health Organization defines a very cost-effective intervention as one that costs less than the value of the gross domestic product of a country per capita per disability-adjusted life year. Daily is a, a common metric used in global health studies to, um, to describe burden of disease. That's a mouthful. So less than the value of um, the GDP per capita per disability-adjusted life year. So just to give you some examples, childhood immunization, immunization programs are cheap, about 10 bucks per uh, disability-adjusted life year or burden. If you look at the surgical literature from low resource settings, um, especially emergency obstetric and uh, emergency trauma surgery, this costs anywhere from about $11 to upwards of $200 per disability adjusted life year. The World Bank defines, um, or just to give you an example, Burundi, which is one of the, the poorest countries according to the World Bank, has a per capita uh, GDP of about $315. So even in uh, a low-income country, a poor country, as defined by the World Bank, emergency surgery actually might be very cost-effective. And again, to put this into perspective, I don't think anybody in this room would argue that uh, treatment of AIDS in low-resource settings, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, is a bad thing, right? This is something that should be funded. But when you actually break down the costs, uh, ART for HIV and AIDS treatment costs anywhere from 600 to over $1,000 right, per year of life saved. It's actually quite expensive. So I can't imagine that emergency surgery, which requires a surgeon, an anesthetist, an operating room, equipment, electricity most of the time, right? Um, if that's very cost effective, I can't imagine that a, a cheap bag of saline, which I could literally make in my kitchen, if I could do it sterilely, I could, right? Some cheap antibiotics and 
you know, somebody to actually monitor blood pressure and monitor vitals can't be very cost effective. Right? Unfortunately, we don't have um, the data to support this, but intuition would suggest that it, it actually can be. So why sepsis? Why am I focusing on sepsis um, altogether? Well, if you look at data from high-income countries, infections uh, account for about 6% of all deaths. Right? This is 2004 data. And extrapolating that, um, or actually based on uh, hospital coding, about 2.5 million people die every year uh, due to sepsis alone. These numbers are probably a little bit more now. But when you look at the rest of the world, most of which um, is the, the developing world, um, the burden of infectious disease is considerably higher, right? And extrapolating data from high-income countries, almost 20 million people die every year due to sepsis, right? But this is 2004 data, and ex it's extrapolated from high-income countries. So do we have any other metrics or any other um, evidence to, to suggest the burden of disease? In 2010, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation funded a very ambitious project called the Global Burden of Disease Study. Um, and their, uh, their results were published uh, a couple of years ago in some high-impact journals. Uh, this one particular article looked at uh, the, uh, estimated the global and regional mortality from 235 causes of death for 20 age groups, right, comparing between 1990 and 2010. A huge study. But guess what? Sepsis wasn't included. Right? It's a syndrome, not a disease. What about some contemporary literature? Last year in intensive care medicine, the IMPRESS study, the results of the IMPRESS study were performed. IMPRESS stands for the International Multicenter Prevalence of Sepsis Study. This was a single day global point prevalence study. The authors wanted to know how does sepsis present, right? What does it look like all around the world? They uh, enrolled almost 1,800 patients with severe sepsis and septic shock from 62 countries around the world. Pretty impressive, right? Do you know how many patients were enrolled from low-income countries? Any guesses? Zero, somebody said? Nobody else wants to guess? All right. There was one, one patient from a low-income country, and that was Uganda. Now, to the author's credit, to the author's credit, they actually did a pretty good job of uh, diversifying this. They, they did enroll um, a number of patients from low-middle-income countries. These were seven countries uh, spanning five WHO geographic regions. But altogether, out of nearly 1,800 patients enrolled in this study, only 90 came from low and low-middle-income countries. So we really don't have a good sense as to how sepsis presents in, uh, in these settings. And you look, if you look at the international sepsis guidelines, the ones that we follow, right, the ones that are written by these international experts, um, there's very little representation for low and low middle income countries. The writing committee consists of people who practice predominantly in high income countries. The 2012 guidelines only had uh, one author from, uh, from Brazil, which is considered an upper middle income country, uh, according to the World Bank. Right? There's no representation from low or low middle income countries. And even the most recent iteration um, of uh, changes to sepsis definitions, the sepsis three definitions that came out three weeks ago in the Journal of the American Medical Association, they took 19 world-renowned experts, uh, primarily from Europe and North America, right, and came up with uh, a new consensus definition for severe sepsis, or uh, no, there's no longer severe sepsis, for sepsis and septic shock, right? But again, there were no representatives from low or low-middle income countries. So these are estimates, but roughly 5.8 billion of the world's 7.3 billion people aren't represented by these international guidelines. Going beyond the sepsis literature, um, if you look at global health literature overall uh, from low and low middle income countries, the vast majority of it tends to come from one particular region. Right? 
So I think we have a problem here. Sepsis, we know, is a globally important syndrome. It affects absolutely everybody around the world. Yet there are very few data highlighting sepsis in resource-constrained settings. So what do we know? What data do we have? Well, I think we know, and I think anyone who's been overseas and worked in a resource-constrained setting can speak to this, right? Um, we know that there are major challenges to uh, treating septic patients and certainly to treating the critically ill patient in resource-constrained settings. There are many, many layers to these challenges, but fundamentally, I think it comes down to training, staffing, and equipment. There are limitations in sepsis recognition and triage. Uh, we know from the pediatric literature that improved triage for children reduces inpatient mortality for acutely ill um, children. Right? But when it comes to sepsis in particular, it often goes unrecognized even after sufficient training. This was a study published in the journal Lancet about 15 years ago that uh, performed a before and after survey of uh, acute, acute care providers um, in an emergency department after uh, a triage protocol was established. And for sepsis, only 19% of doctors at teaching hospitals, that's me, right, um, recognized sepsis. People in um, in district hospitals tend to do a little bit better. Nurses tended to do better than, than doctors themselves. There are also significant limitations in human resources. Unlike high-income countries such as the United States and Canada, where in general there are ample nurses and by and large uh, a sufficient number of physicians, in low-income countries, right, there are very few nurses and very few trained providers. And again, for anyone who's been overseas um, to a district hospital in sub-Saharan Africa, Actually, just out of curiosity, has anyone been overseas? Has anyone actually had experience in this room? So just a, a handful of people. And back me up here or tell me if you've had a different experience. From my experience, there was one ward with 50 to 70 critically ill patients, right? All of whom were either on a bed or on the ground or outside. One, maybe two nurses on a good day, frantically going around trying to administer meds, take vital signs. There was a single physician who was there for maybe an hour or two, and then that physician was nowhere to be found because he or she was taking care of patients somewhere else. Right? So it's almost unfair to, to expect a nurse to be able to take vital signs every 30 minutes or for um, surviving sepsis campaign guidelines to be met when you have such significant human resource limitations. What about equipment? This was a survey uh, uh, performed a number of years ago in sub-Saharan Africa where they surveyed 263 providers. Uh, I want to say that these were anesthesiologists. This is a very busy slide. Um, the details aren't important, but just to highlight um, some of the salient details, we know that pneumonia, respiratory distress, is one of the, the major causes of severe sepsis, septic shock, and resource-constrained resource uh, countries. Almost 4% of these respondents never had access to an x-ray. Um, almost 15% never had access to an oxygen saturation probe, right? Certainly mechanical ventilation wasn't common. Um, excuse me, 7% uh, never had access to, um, to a, an oxygen saturation probe. And uh, just under 15% never had access to mechanical ventilation. And when we talk about places that do have equipment, oftentimes we're talking about basic equipment. These are pictures from our site in Haiti. Um, this has a six-bed ICU, right, with uh, the ability to mechanically ventilate people. Everything is based on uh, donated, uh, donation, donation, uh, sorry, everything is based on donation, right, donated equipment. Um, so the ventilator that they have is an LTV 1200. This was an old transport vent that uh, are often used in ambulances or, or uh, medevacs, right? We're not talking about servo eyes here. You can ventilate people, but you don't necessarily have all the bells and whistles. Um, the, the monitor is a single lead ECG monitor. They do have oxygen saturation probes there. Um, we don't really have an x-ray suite, right? We have a, a portable digital x-ray. Um, so the resources 
are basic, right? But in some places, they actually can uh, perform a lot of things despite these limited resources. But even beyond limited equipment, right, there are major limitations to, to basic hospital needs. This was another survey of physicians in sub-Saharan Africa, 200, uh, representing 231 health centers in 12 African countries, so pretty representative of the, the continent. 35% of respondents said electricity was always available. 35% always had electricity. Right? Just uh, about a quarter never had oxygen at all. Right? How can you save people? How can you reduce mortality when you don't even have basic needs? These are deficiencies in fundamentals, right, that impact the, the care uh, and the mortality of all patients coming into the hospital. But when it comes to sepsis and septic shock in particular, right, these fundamental deficiencies um, actually have a direct impact. So let's go through that a little bit more. Resuscitation um, is problematic in resource-constrained settings, and the available data actually show why. So literature from high-income countries um, showed that people are resuscitated with increased uh, volume of fluid. Dr. Rivers, in his early goal-directed therapy trial, 2001, um, the control group received 3.5 liters of resuscitation fluid in the first six hours. Process and Arise, both big studies recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine, um, the patients received 2.3 liters and 2.5 liters, respectively, uh, in the usual care group after six hours. If you look at the data from low and low-middle-income countries in Uganda, usual care patients received half a liter of crystalloid in the first six hours. In Zambia, they received 1.7 liters, usual care, a little bit more. And from our data uh, in Haiti, in the first 24 hours, people received about 1.3 liters of either normal saline or uh, lactated ringers. And it's not necessarily that physicians don't know what they're doing or don't care. There are some very practical limitations. We already talked about practical limitations in equipment. At our site in Haiti, when we, we studied this in 2013, at that time, because of financial restrictions, the hospital only received 100 half-liter bottles of saline and ringer's lactate per month. 100 half-liter bottles, right? So if somebody's coming in in septic shock, sure, you know, the physician can give five liters of fluid. Maybe that's what they, they need to do in order to save this person's life. But then that means that there's that much less for the uh, OR patients, right? For the other septic patients who are coming in, for women who are hemorrhaging, right? People have to make very, very difficult decisions in these environments because resources are extremely limited. We also know that um, these resource limitations and, and these structural deficiencies uh, can impact uh, post-resuscitation monitoring. This was a study uh, published uh, a couple of years ago that looked at the frequency of monitoring for severely septic patients at a major tertiary hospital in the capital of Uganda. And what they found was that, on average, um, Blood pressure was measured once a day. Temp and pulse also measured once a day. Respiratory rate measured on average about half a time a day when you calculate it out. Almost everybody had a blood pressure measured at least once, but the, num uh, the number of patients that had a blood pressure measured three times was exponentially lower. Interestingly, in this study, they actually showed that people that were monitored more frequently had a higher mortality rate, which is kind of counterintuitive. My best guess is that these are the patients who looked sicker, right, who were the ones who presented with a more advanced stage of disease, and so were more likely to die to begin with. And when people look sick, people, you know, all of us, we tend to pay a little bit more attention to those patients. But beyond material limitations, I think the science of sepsis in resource-constrained settings may be different than what we're used to here in high-income settings. Right? We're dealing with incredibly diverse patient populations with different environments, different nutritional habits, different microbiomes, different, different genetic profiles. We're dealing with different diseases, right? 
in the global south, um, especially in sub-Saharan Africa, there are much higher rates of malaria and dengue. Melioidosis in Southeast Asia. I'd never even heard of melioidosis, I think, until I was a resident, maybe a fellow. Certainly never seen a case, to the best of my knowledge. Um, but we know from, uh, from the work of our global health colleagues in Southeast Asia that this is a major problem, that the approach to treatment of sepsis in melioidosis is a little bit different than perhaps what we do here. Also, the prevalence of HIV and AIDS can't be ignored, right? And TB kind of goes along with that, right? Studies show that, um, well, we don't need studies. We know that tuberculosis tends not to be an acute problem, right? This is a, a subacute, long-term problem. And so sepsis and TB um, might need to be approached differently given the chronicity of the disease. Also, we're dealing with different cultures, different socioeconomic statuses that all come into play. And just to give you an anecdotal example, when I was in South Sudan, this wasn't sepsis per se, but people who would come in in hemorrhagic shock um, often died because of lack of availability of blood. There was no blood bank at the National Referral Hospital. Uh, the hospital did have the ability to uh, perform whole blood transfusions. Everyone there knew their blood type because transfusions were so common because malaria and things like that were were pretty prevalent. And so growing up, everybody knew their blood type. You could just ask somebody walking in the door, what's your blood type, they would know. I witnessed family members watching their loved ones die, right, instead of donating blood, even though they were the same blood type. And the, the thought was in certain tribes that if, um, if you're sick and I donate my blood to you, then whatever kind of evil spirit, whatever ailment is uh, infecting you will come and affect me also. Right? So I watched brothers watch their siblings die. I watched parents watch their children die, right? rather than donate blood. It was incredibly difficult not to get angry, not to say, what the heck is going on here? You know, Come on, let's do this. But I realized after a while that we're dealing with very different cultures, and I can't criticize that. This is the way that we approach it. I had to work around um, those cultures in order to, oh, those, those cultural barriers in order to try to improve outcomes, and we did. I think the idea of the science being different was very well captured um, in the FEAST study. Many of you may be familiar with this, many of you may have read this. This was the Fluid Expansion as Supportive Therapy Trial, which was published in the New England Journal in 2011. This was an open-label, randomized control study performed in East Africa, which enrolled uh, just over 3,000 children with severe febrile illness. Their inclusion criteria were children um, who were febrile, who had altered mental status, increased work of breathing. Uh, a rapid heart rate, tachycardia, and decreased uh, perfusion on exam. So for all intents and purposes, children with severe sepsis, septic shock. Uh, there were three arms. Um, the first arm, uh, the in the first arm, the children received normal saline boluses. On average, they got about 40 cc's per kilogram of body weight. The second arm, the children received albumin boluses. Again, in total, they received about 40 cc's per kilogram. And then in the third arm, they received no bolus whatsoever. Conventional wisdom says when somebody comes in in septic shock, you bolus them, right? And that improves mortality, that saves lives. The results of the FEAST trial were actually shocking um, and have uh, started to change clinical practice. What they found was that in the uh, arms in which the children received boluses, whether albumin or saline, right, mortality actually increased at 48 hours. There was also an increased risk of death and neurologic sequelae, or both, at four weeks. Conventional wisdom, um, which comes from evidence uh, created or developed in high-income countries, right? says we bolus children, we bolus people in shock. But what we realized with FEAST is that we can't necessarily extrapolate conventional wisdom from high-income countries 
to low-income countries. We actually might be killing children by doing that. We might be harming patients by doing that. That was the pediatric literature. What about the adult literature? Um, this was a study published by Ben Andrews out of Vanderbilt in 2014, um, which tried to implement a simplified severe sepsis protocol at a major teaching hospital in the capital of Zambia in southern Africa. This was a pilot, non-blinded, randomized control trial. The intervention group uh, enrolled 53 emergency department patients with severe sepsis. They initially received a two-liter bolus of either normal saline or ringer's lactate in the first hour, and then further fluid boluses were determined by the patient's jugular venous pressure, um, up to four liters. Right? And that four-liter determination was based on uh, Dr. Rivers' early goal-directed therapy uh, study and other uh, articles that have been published uh, involving patients from high-income countries. On average, they got uh, about 2.7 liters of IV fluids. The control, excuse me, the control group we know uh, received about 1.7 liters. This was 56 emergency department patients with severe sepsis. What they found was interesting. They actually stopped the study early because only two patients were transferred to the ICU for mechanical ventilation. Out of the 18 patients with hypoxic respiratory failure, defined as a, a respiratory rate greater than 80, excuse me, uh, greater than 40 and a pulse ox reading less than 90%. Um, there were 18 patients. 10 of those patients were in the uh, intervention group, and excuse me, sorry, eight of those patients were in the intervention group. 10 of them were in the control group. But 100% of the people in the intervention group died, and only 70% of the patients in the control group died. And so they reason that because of the low transfer rate for mechanical ventilation, right, bolus fluid resuscitation might actually cause harm. So the question was, is aggressive volume resuscitation bad in resource-constrained settings where easy access to mechanical ventilation is lacking? Conventional wisdom says bolus fluids is good, are good, right? Now we're finding out that conventional wisdom might actually be wrong, and extrapolating evidence from high-income countries to low-income countries might actually harm patients. So we know that sepsis is a globally important syndrome. We know that there are very few data highlighting sepsis in resource-constrained settings. And I think the available data suggests that sepsis in resource-constrained settings is unique, or at the very least, has to be approached in a nuanced fashion. Right? So what do we do based on the evidence that we have, limited though it may be? There have been some valiant efforts to develop uh, guidelines for the treatment of severe sepsis and septic shock specific for resource-constrained settings. Uh, one of these was uh, uh, spearheaded by Martin Dunser out of uh, Salzburg, Austria, um, who is a member of the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine. They published these recommend recommendations in 2012. Um, Dr. Dunser got together a, a global intensive care working group with representation from high, middle, and low-income uh, countries. They got the backing of uh, global professional critical care societies. I'm convinced that this is the worst acronym in medicine. It's the World Federation of Society of Intensive and Critical Care Medicine. And then the one with the P is the pediatric version of that. Um, but these recommendations were primarily based on consensus, of course, because we don't have a lot of data, uh, high quality data, um, to back up the recommendations. Around the same time, the World Health Organization uh, published the Integrated Management of Adolescent and Adult Illness District Clinician Manual, with, which had a, a pretty impressive focus on uh, acute illness. Um, for the, the sepsis protocol specifically, they got together 18 clinicians from five different continents. All of these clinicians uh, had direct experience in resource-constrained settings. But again, the protocol was based mostly on consensus recommendations. Very busy slide, the details aren't important, but just so you have a sense of, of what the WHO uh, protocol involved, 
they really broke down the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines into its core elements. Recognition of abnormal vital signs, they redefined what systemic inflammatory response should be um, for resource-constrained settings. They emphasized giving oxygen and IV fluids uh, when it's clinically appropriate, giving antibiotics early, and then following up uh, with vital signs to make sure that patients are resuscitated appropriately and aren't getting worse. And they, this was in the first two hours, and they had a two to six hour period, and then a 24 hour period. But what's the problem with these? Well, none of these algorithms have been validated clinically, so we don't actually know um, whether they improve outcomes, whether they reduce mortality for septic patients. They're based primarily on expert opinion, and going hand in hand with that, they're based on low quality evidence. So perhaps because of all of these different uh, reasons, they haven't really uh, had an impact globally, right? Nobody really uses them overseas uh, in order to, uh, to improve care. So what people do is they, again, try to extrapolate income, or income, they try to extrapolate evidence from high-income countries in low-income countries, but we're realizing more and more that that might not be a good idea. So what do we do? I think we've realized in the past 20 years that less is more. This is something that Dr. Dr. McCurdy and I talk about a lot. We now use um, restrictive transfusion strategies. We now use low tidal volume ventilation, right? Nobody really gets a, a swan gans anymore unless they really, really need it, whereas that was standard practice back in the day. And when it comes to the sepsis literature, um, recent high-quality studies published in high-quality journals, I think, have shown that we don't necessarily need all the bells and whistles of early goal-directed therapy in order to reduce uh, mortality and to improve outcomes. And also, non-invasive techniques might actually play a role in reducing mortality as well. The Ebola epidemic recently in West Africa, as horrible as it was, it actually provided a lot of very useful literature for global critical care. And what we found, um, what researchers found, was that supportive care, whether uh, for Ebola virus disease patients in high-income countries or in low-income countries in West Africa, can reduce mortality. We're not dealing with cures, right? We don't have uh, vaccines for Ebola, but we can save <coughs> lives as long as we support the critically ill patients in the way that we do um, here, by just recognition of badness when it happens, resuscitating appropriately, and monitoring. And even with the new sepsis guidelines that were published a few weeks ago, the new definitions, and specifically I'm talking about the Q-SOFA score, uh, are emphasizing physiologic variables as opposed to variables that previously required uh, laboratory testing. And I think this shift towards a more physiologic diagnosis um, represents a, a trend in critical care medicine that we're seeing now, and I think we're going to see increasingly over the, the coming decades. There have been more studies uh, published uh, in high-quality journals showing that the body can really tell us what we need to know. We don't necessarily need all the bells and whistles, right? Our standard uh, operating procedure is somebody comes in, they get an A-line, right, when it's clinically appropriate, a central line when it's cl clinically appropriate, we hook them up to a Vigileo or a flow track monitor. We're doing a lot of things that require a lot of resources. But as more evidence uh, is published, I think um, we're gonna find out that things that our forefathers knew, you know, 50 years ago, that they were doing 50 years ago, are probably okay as well. And so especially as uh, data come out from low resource settings where they really have a practical need to do things based on um, physiologic parameters, we're going to realize that we can do that here as well in high income settings. So what do we need to do now? Where should um, future, what are the future directions for sepsis in resource constrained settings? I think it's absolutely imperative that we develop globally uh, an accurate sepsis evidence base. 
we need more high-quality studies, specific, specifically from resource-constrained settings, so that we know what's appropriate and what's inappropriate for these settings. Um, just to give you an example of what we're doing in our division, um, one of uh, our first projects was to implement the WHO protocol for severe sepsis in resource-constrained settings, the results of which will be published shortly. Um, Dr. Zubrow, this is you. This is from the uh, Baltimore Sun. I hope you don't mind my <laughs> putting you on here. It's the one on the right. Yeah, yeah, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> We're working on um, a tele-ICU uh, project whereby clinicians uh, who are internists, not ICU trained, uh, at our site in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, can uh, connect with our e-care program on the fifth floor of Packer Pratt, 24 hours a day, using an old donated iPad, a reliable internet connection. Uh, also from Dr. Zubra. Thank you for that old donated iPad. <laughs> um, 24 hours a day so they can consult um, whenever they, they have an issue with a, a patient who might not be doing as well as they would like. Dr. Buckner, sitting in row number five over here, was very involved in this uh, project. This is a tele-ultrasound uh, project, also at our same site in Haiti, um, which uh, the results of which will be published soon. And correct me if I'm wrong, Jess, um, you showed that uh, reliable ultrasound images um, that can actually be clinically meaningful um, can be obtained over mobile phone technology, right, that allows people to chat uh, from a low resource setting to a high resource setting 24 hours a day. Ultrasound can be used in a clinically meaningful way, and especially people with limited ultrasound experience can learn using a telemedicine and mobile platform uh, technology. So we need to develop an accurate sepsis evidence base. We also need to emphasize the breadth of environments where sepsis care occurs. Again, we're dealing with an incredibly uh, diverse patient population, right? And we also need to recognize that uh, most sepsis care in resource-constrained settings occurs outside of the ICU. So future protocols, I think, need to be developed with that in mind, where we don't necessarily have all the resources available, even in resource-constrained settings. ICUs tend to have more resources than the wards, but the wards is where most of these septic patients actually uh, present and die. And also, I think it's really important um, to recognize where the research is coming from. Um, this map is scaled by population. Uh, Asia is bulging because that's where the majority of the world's population lives. But most of the global health literature comes from areas where perhaps uh, the population is less so. So are we creating a, a global health bias um, based on the, the studies that have been published? I'm not sure about that, but I think it's really important to have a diversity of literature um, from all over the world to make sure that we're not extrapolating things from one region to the other because we know, we know now, that blind extrapolation can actually increase harm. I think it's critically important to involve practicing clinicians from resource-constrained settings in the guideline development process, the international guideline development process. Um, and I really hope that uh, future iterations of surviving sepsis campaign and future definition changes will have greater representation from low and low middle income countries. And I think perhaps most important and certainly most relevant to a lot of the people in this room, it's really important to increase international opportunities for trainees, whether medical students, residents, or fellows. Um, you can see how skinny I was back in the day. This is me in medical school. As a second year medical student, I went to West Africa. I was in Ghana. I was running my own uh, medicine clinic, my own outpatient clinic. As you can see, I was very professionally dressed at that time. Um, I was first assisting on surgeries. I was taking call overnight. I was doing things that I will never do again, that I certainly was never allowed to do um, as, as a student um, at McGill. Um, and I saw things that I'll never see again. I take that experience and nothing will ever compare to that. Residency can beat you down. It's really easy to get jaded and to lose track of why it is that we became a doctor. But after residency, 
I went to South Sudan, and it was a life-changing experience for me. I love this action shot. I don't know, just seemed really intense. I learned so much there. It challenged me. I learned so much about myself. I learned so much about the practice of medicine globally. And then in fellowship, um, I got to go to Haiti, and I developed uh, a love for global health research, and I got to ride in the back of a pickup truck and make stupid faces. Right? <laughs> I think going overseas keeps us humble. It makes us better humanitarians. It makes us better doctors or nurses. Um, and it just gives us a much broader perspective on the practice of medicine and allows us to bring that perspective back to our patients here. And without that experience, I think it's very easy to lose sight of, um, of the enormous need and the enormous impact that we can have individually and together collectively um, to improve outcomes. That's it. Thank you for listening. I'd be happy to take questions. Dr. Shah. Thanks for that talk, Fred. It's, it's, uh, it's always nice to see and hear and kind of motivate all of us to, to do more with what we know. One of the things that we noticed when, when I went to, to Delhi, um, was kind of rounding on the awards with them, was that uh, even though kind of India in, in certain parts is considered a resource limited setting um, or a resource constrained setting, um, there are parts of it where resources are, are what I noticed was that some of the antibiotics that we restrict tremendously here were being used routinely um, on patients that didn't need broad, that broad spectrum coverage. So how do you balance kind of the, the lack of resources in some areas and then the completely gross mismanagement of resources in, a, in another area, in the same country, in the same city? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question. So Dr. Shah uh, is asking about um, really disparities in resources um, even within a country or within a region. Is that an accurate way of summing it up? Um, and how do we deal with that? How do we reconcile that? I think that's a great point. So I, I, I presented some studies, um, you know, literature from resource-constrained settings, right, low-income countries. But these were studies performed at the National Referral Hospital that have mechanical ventilation, probably have reliable electricity, that have, you know, nurses and, and everything else. But you go an hour outside of the main city and you're dealing with uh, Tukuls, you know, mud huts, right? District hospitals that probably don't have reliable electri electricity. Um, most of the, the care is provided by uh, clinical officers with very limited training, certainly in acute care medicine. I don't know the answer to that, right? So I'm calling for more research in resource-limited countries, but even then, even within resource-limited countries, there are huge disparities. Certainly your example of India, I think you were at Ames, is that right? Which is a top-notch institution um, you know, on par with you know, really any tertiary care facility here in the United States. But in other hospitals within New Delhi or certainly in other parts of India, you just don't have the same resources. I don't know the answer to that, but that's why I think it's really important to increase the knowledge base um, by, by publishing studies both in high resource institutions and also low resource institutions even within the same region. Dr. McCurdy. For uh, uh, dissemination of uh, knowledge that we have that may be applicable to those settings as well. I mean, because so many of these places, and Fred, you can comment on it, is just the, uh, what they know and don't know. And education is free. And I think our provision of proper education in those settings uh, is time well spent on our, on our uh, parts. Uh, major out, uh, improvements in outcome uh, with very little actual financial cost. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> Dr. Zubram. So, <clears throat> excuse me, perfect talk. 
I think your point's extremely well taken about not extrapolating data from one environment to another. Uh, the uh, I think it's the peace study uh, that was kids in Africa. Mm -hmm. um, I think 80% of them had malaria. And my takeaway from that paper is don't confuse the kids with malaria mm -hmm. uh, rather than generalizing. Well, well they did. In, in letters to the editor that followed that, they yeah. did a subgroup analysis taking out the malaria kids and they still found the same treatment of that. Yeah, but it wasn't statistically significant. It was just a trend toward that one. But and again, we have to continue to look at this. Uh, as I look around the room, I'm probably the only one old enough to have treated meloidiosis from the Vietnam War. The soldiers used to come back with that. They used to get it from the helicopter blades when it would spin over the swamps and they inhale it. Uh, so uh, it, uh, and it is treated differently. Mm -hmm. So just for people listening online, Dr. Zubra said that there are limitations even with the fee study, right? The majority of patients um, had um, had malaria, and so his takeaway is that you don't give bolus fluid resuscitation to kids with malaria. Um, but I think that the point of FEAST is that it raises really interesting questions, and it, it, it causes us to pause and say, are we actually doing the right thing by using conventional wisdom? Well, Dr. Shanholtz. I was going to make a similar point about extrapolating data from an RCT in one setting uh, to another population, but I think that's the, the truth, not even, not only in a resource constrained, uh, constrained environment, but also in, you know, a tertiary care hospital. There's, if you ever, well, effectiveness studies always show less of a treatment effect than efficacy trials, the randomized control trials, because you have these pristine conditions where you have investigators and research coordinators looking after a patient, then you try the same intervention on the average patient, and the average thing <coughs> never comes out just, you know, as well. So I worry about things like recommendations for 30 mLs per kilo fluid resuscitation blindly in all comers as part of the surviving sepsis guidelines now mandated by Medicare, uh, because the results may not be the same when you don't have a ready ICU bed, mm -hmm. you have a bunch of patients who have Renal failure, um, right heart failure, and you can get into trouble, and there just may not be some kind of attention that's going to bail you out on the general medical board uh, as you have in an ICU. Yep. So, so I wanted to circle back to one thing that Mike said, and, that, and that's that education is is free. And I think that it, it's it's one thing that we sit here and we have a lecture about sepsis in a resource constrained environment, but on a regular basis, we have conferences, and this is a, a, a plug for the ccproject.com. But uh, I think the intent and the, and the execution of CC Project and the availability of the resources that we have here, through lectures and through through um, cases and things like that, that we have the ability and the time to be able to spend to do and to put on that website, I and have available across the world. And when you look at the Google Analytics and how many hits there are from some some countries that are considered resource limited. Um, I think all of our conferences should be available on CC Project. I think the fact that we charge people for conferences here is one thing, but the fact that they should be available abroad mm -hmm. so that people can see them and learn from them is huge. And I think that all of us kind of sitting in this room should think about that as we think about what we can do. We may not have the time or the money or the energy or the um, ability to go abroad every single year, but we all have the ability to contribute to the education worldwide 
for people that are, that are in these resources and economies, and we should do it on a regular basis more often. I was particularly impressed that um, we had uh, hits from Tibet, actually, uh, on the website. That was really impressive. Yes, sir. So I'm, um, I'm actually a second-year medicine resident rotating through, but just a second after Shah and after Curry said, uh, from the other end of things, I was in Somalia last year, um, really, really, probably one of the worst times in the world, um, Haiti, camps some years, etc. So there was a patient, uh, a neighbor of mine who was in the PKA, I was trying to, there are no ICUs, we didn't know what to do for So I went home, got online, and found uh, an article in the University of Maryland that talked about how to give subacute insulin and some, and some drugs. And we just went to the pharmacy of lots of insulin and gave them insulin. I before it was up by the bedside. And what, did the did your neighbor survive? That's a wonderful story. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It, it's it probably made you feel great, right? Well, you know, even in the ICU, we just order it. Uh, Ellen, the nurses are the ones that actually save the patients, right? <laughs> They're the ones that do it. Yes, Dr. McCurney. Fred, can you just comment on the um, argument that you often hear from individuals saying, "Well, why would I spend money?" on critical care, you know, diagnosis and therapy, et cetera, in resource-constrained settings, as opposed to just, you know, teach you how to you know, wash your hands, get vaccines, you know, do public health measures. And granted, just to preface it, you know, they're uh, not mutually exclusive, but that's mm -hmm. oftentimes an argument that's uh, brought up by individuals. Sure. So Dr. McCurdy's question is, um, to, or request is to comment on, on the, the thought that is often heard, why should we spend resources and time on acute care medicine, on people who present critically ill, when um, there are other things like uh, sanitation, hand, you know, hand hygiene, uh, public health measures um, that are equally important and probably have greater impact. Is that a, a good way of summarizing? Um, I, I think I, I touched upon that or tried to touch upon that early in the talk. Public health measures, vaccines, sanitation, these are all incredibly important, right? These are the underlying determinants of, uh, of disease in a lot of these settings. I think there should absolutely be funding for these types of things, but not at the expense of acute illness. People get sick no matter what, right? And if we have absolutely no guidelines and no evidence and no resources to treat illness when it happens, especially critical illness, because it happens irrespective of where you are throughout the world, then we are letting millions of people die unnecessarily. Millions of people, right? Public health measures over the course of time can improve the lives and reduce mortality for millions of people. Funding acute care medicine can save the lives of millions of people as well, right? And it doesn't require very many resources in particular. Sure, more than you know, an injection does, right? But it can still be cost effective and still have a tremendous economic impact um, on, uh, on countries and, and locations also, because these are the providers for their families. And without a, a mom or without a dad, families fall apart. Okay, thanks again, everyone. Have a great afternoon.